0: it's wednesday april 17th i'm oscar ramirez in los angeles and this is the daily dive in the aftermath of the fire that destroyed part of the notre dame cathedral in paris the status of many of the cathedral's artifacts were uncertain many of the priceless relics were salvaged including the crown of thorns which was believed to be placed on jesus christ's head at crucifixion marisa fernandez reporter at axios joins us for what was saved and what's next how long it will take to rebuild. Next, in anticipation of the redacted version of the Mueller report to be released on Thursday, we speak to Kyle Cheney, reporter at Politico, for the major subplots to watch in the report. While we know the main plots, Russian Collusion and Obstruction of Justice, there are other storylines, subplots, and characters to learn more about. Kyle helps us break it all down. Finally, as Measles' cases continue to rise across the country and the world, We have finally found a patient, Zero, who infected 39 people in Michigan. It is a traveler who picked it up in Brooklyn and took it to Detroit. The crazy thing is he felt sick, went to the doctor, but the doctor had never seen a case of measles before and misdiagnosed him. Lena Sun, national health reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for how the measles are getting around. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: We were able to save the most important relics, which is the crown of spine, you know, of Jesus Christ. The that crown is of the crown of thorn, exactly. You know, so it's, it has been preserved with also uh, the other relics and also the the uh, wearing of uh, Saint Louis. It's all preserved. Joining
0: us now is Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios. Let's uh, touch base a little bit on what happened with the Notre Dame Cathedral fire. Such a devastating loss for France and for the world. It is kind of an architectural treasure obviously means a lot to Catholics around the world. It was housing some of just the most priceless artifacts that you can think of. Let's start there because yesterday when we were talking about this, the fate of a lot of these artifacts was still unknown. Chief among them was the crown of thorns that was purported to be placed on uh, the head of Jesus as he was being crucified. What were they able to save?
1: It's an 850-year-old building that outlasted monarchs and the French Revolution. Its wide coverage of the fire was on the front of almost every newspaper across the U.S. and the world. What was saved was the Crown of Thorn, which uh, is considered priceless. What was also saved was the Tunic of St. Louis and the Twin Bell Towers, of course. The Great Organ uh, was also saved. And like I said, some rooftop statues of uh, some of the apostles.
0: Yeah, with the organ, the curiosity is it was not necessarily damaged with fire, but the concern is smoke and water because it's, uh, you know, such a sensitive, it's so old and it's such a sensitive instrument. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Organs are considered, you know, they have, of course, you know, the keyboard and the foot pedals. But the pipes, essentially, operate separate from, you know, sometimes they're on the other side of cathedrals. That's also an issue as far as, like, where they were located, where the water was hitting, and, uh, you know, how high the heat was.
0: The roof was lost. They called it the, the forest, which was made from oak beams that were cut down from trees in the year 1160 and 1170. So these things are ancient and of themselves. And the problem with that is that, they're saying that they don't have any trees big enough right now in France that they would be able to use to rebuild that part of the roof. So they're going to have to use new technologies and kind of figure out another way to rebuild that part of it.
1: You bring up a good point where, you know, we have all of these amazing people and companies that are, you know, pooling money to give to restore this church. But at the same time, Maybe the resources just aren't even available, regardless of how much money it costs.
0: Do we know of anything specifically that was lost in the fire?
1: We have some unconfirmed artifacts that they're saying they can't find yet. One of them is called the Gallery of Kings, which is a statue that uh, that was from the 13th century. One more thing is that um, they believe that they cannot find what they consider a nail that was to have been moved in Jesus's crucifixion.
0: And even with the crown of thorns, there was a great story of a priest who ran in there and you know they formed like a human chain so they can get some of these artifacts out. Let's move on a little bit into the investigation of what's happening. They're still saying it's probably an accident related to the renovation, but that's going to be ongoing. They have like 50 investigators getting in there, but... It'll take time. They have to clear debris. They have to go through everything meticulously. So that part will take time. And and as you said, people have started already pledging money, I think over $700 million uh, so far, to help with the renovations. I think Emmanuel Macron, the president, said that he hopes to get it rebuilt within five years. Other experts are saying that's not going to happen. It's going to take at least maybe 15 years or so.
1: Yeah, experts, like you were saying, um, they are going in and saying that five years is going to be quite difficult. We know a spokesperson for the Notre Dame used the phrase, colossal damage, to describe the state of the church. I mean, some of the pictures that you see on the inside um, after they finally got the fire contained was glowing embers, smoke everywhere. I mean, it's going to take a while. And I love the determination, personally. But as far as what we're hearing, it's going to be very interesting to see if five years is really the time frame that we can allot.
0: Early reports say that the cathedral does appear to be structurally sound, but yeah, they gotta get in there and really check that out completely. And you know, part of the beauty of it is obviously it's so old, the age, the the size, the French gothic design, the, the you know, the forest up there, all the, the wooden beams that we're holding it all together. But that also worked against firefighters who were trying to put the fire out. You know, it's tough to get in there. You have to fight it from the outside. They didn't have a sophisticated sprinkler system or anything because of the age of the building. So I'm sure when they rebuild it, they will look to all that and try to implement that. But it's just a tragedy that part of its beauty really was its downfall also. Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It should never happen
1: to a president again. You're just lucky I happened to be the president because a lot of other presidents would
0: have reacted much differently than I reacted. You're very lucky I was the president during the scam, during the Russian hoax, as I call it. Joining us now is Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico, The Mueller Report. Everybody's waiting for its release on Thursday. The attorney general, William Barr, is going to release a redacted version. But there's tons of things that we're expecting to try to find out. Uh, the two main plot points that we already know about are whether there was collusion with Russia, they decided that there was not, and obstruction of justice. That one has uh, lies in murky territory. Uh, Mueller did not want to make a determination. He said that there's evidence for it. There's evidence against it. And uh, the attorney general, William Barr, said there's no obstruction there and we're not going to charge the president with any type of obstruction there. But there's so many things to watch out for. Uh, At Politico, you guys did a great article, 25 subplots to watch in the Mueller investigation. Let's start off at the top, uh, the president being at the center of a lot of this stuff. What do we know about this?
2: This may be the most significant aspect of what we learn on Thursdays. What did the president do behind the scenes to get in the middle or to muck up the investigation of his campaign's interaction with the Russians? Did he you know, give orders to try to get in the way of what the FBI was doing that were either ignored or that he eventually reversed. Uh, Some of this stuff's been reported, but what we know from uh, Attorney General Barr's initial letter is that some things were not reported. So there should be some new information about things the president did that may weigh against him on the obstruction of justice question, things that even if they're not charged as a crime could be very damaging, or at least politically, uh, if not legally, uh, and new to the public.
0: We all know the president loves to tweet, and we know that these are now part of the presidential record. So this was just a treasure trove of things that the Mueller team could use to make certain determinations on obstruction or intimidating witnesses, things like that.
2: Well, and that's another thing here is on on the flip side of things that are not public is there's a very public record of things the president has done and said that could be construed as obstruction of justice. And we don't know what theory Mueller was operating under. He may look at those tweets and say, look, the president was trying to browbeat his attorney general, browbeat the FBI into backing off this investigation. He was doing it behind the scenes with Jim Comey, which we know from some of the memos that have become public. And he was doing it outwardly by you know, attacking the investigators who were looking into this uh, so maybe in some Mueller looked at that and said that weighs in favor of an obstruction charge even if he ultimately didn't make a finding
0: what are we looking for when it comes to the democrats and how they got hacked by russia what are we looking for there
2: so this may be among, among the most enlightening parts of the report which is Really, Mueller's original mandate, which is tell us what Russia did and how they did it in 2016. There's pretty you know unanimous agreement among intelligence officials that Russia hacked uh, Democratic Party emails. They hacked uh, emails from associates of Hillary Clinton and then used WikiLeaks to make those emails public. Mueller may give us more detail than he has to this point about what did they do? How did they do it? Did they manipulate any Americans to get there? So even if any American no Americans committed crimes were any of them manipulated into doing Russia's bidding unwittingly uh, in that process. So we may get a big look at, uh, you know, the actual plot that's pretty widely agreed upon occurred.
0: The Attorney General William Barr in some congressional testimony had said that he believes that there was some type of spying going on on the Trump campaign. He he walked it back a little bit, but we're expecting to find out uh, kind of how the whole thing got started. We know some of the pieces already with George Papadopoulos and the Steele dossier, but uh, we're hoping to get a little more information on how all those dots are connected.
2: Yeah, and and one of the questions I think, especially for Republicans, is will Mueller at all talk about whether there was any FBI misconduct, anything un, inappropriate that the FBI did to launch this investigation. It's not clear that Mueller viewed that as part of his mandate, but he may explain sort of the foundations and the origins of this investigation in a way that tell us, you know, do, do, is there any there there to the Republican concerns that there was malfeasance at the start, some effort to undermine Trump even before he took office.
0: Once the report comes out, it's uh, be turned over to the spin machine. You know, how, how can you spin it to fit uh, your narrative? You know, Democrats... Obviously, uh, still mm-hmm. want to nail the president, the White House wanting to just claim complete exoneration for the whole thing. And, and as the report has basically con- concluded already, there was no collusion, but there's a lot of different examples of interactions that people within the Trump campaign had contact with Russians. So that's going to be interesting to see how all of that, uh, you know, what comes out from there as well.
2: That's one of the uh, sort of underlying things here that could be fascinating and potentially damaging to a lot of people is were people manipulated by Russians? Were they unwitting assets of Russia, Uh, which doesn't necessarily amount to a crime? There was no criminal collusion, but there could be things that that were extremely inappropriate, extremely politically sensitive and damaging. And to the extent that they're not redacted or removed from this version of the report, Could show a lot of potentially negative light on how the Trump campaign conducted itself, even if it didn't amount to a crime.
0: Donald Trump Jr. comes to mind in this one, the uh, famous Trump Tower meeting Mm -hmm. when I think Jared Kushner was there, Steve Bannon was there. They were going to supposedly get some dirt on Hillary Clinton, and there's emails going back and forth saying, I love it. You know, I want to get the information. That's one that I know a lot of people are going to be focusing on trying to get as much information as they can from that.
2: Exactly. And that, you know, apparently since there there were no crimes stemming from that, they may have determined that there was no one intentionally trying to encourage any sort of hacking or inappropriate activity. But that's one that drew a lot of condemnation, that even if it's not criminals, is you knew that the Russian government supposedly wanted to help you and you actively solicited that help. And so... That one was already a political kind of black mark on the campaign, but this may tell us more about how that came together and whether there was awareness of really what was at play here.
0: Thursday is the big day. It's when the redacted Mueller report will be released. It's uh, anywhere from 300 to 400 pages. The obstruction of justice stuff is really the main point now to see why Mueller maybe didn't make a determination and how much evidence there was that he thinks that weighs it that way.
2: Right. And, and whether he wanted Congress to answer that, because a lot of times, especially when it comes to presidential conduct, Congress is the venue where they figure, that, figure out difficult questions like this. So I think Democrats are upset that Barr tried to sort of get in there and say, well, there's no obstruction crime here uh, when they think, well, look, this should be a congressional question to answer. And the other important thing is. This is, you mentioned 300 to 400 pages, plus actually some tables and appendices and other things that will be attached. It's going to be very hard to determine what the takeaway from this report is in the first few hours until people read the whole thing. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of probably bad information, quick judgment that right. may turn out to be wrong on that day.
0: Kyle Cheney, Congressional Reporter yep. for Politico, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: On his way, he felt sick and saw a doctor, but the doctor had never seen measles before. That is this crazy man fever. Think about it. Measles was eliminated in the United States. You have to be an older doctor to have seen measles cases.
0: Joining us now is Lena Sun, national health reporter for The Washington Post. We're going to be talking about measles. Everybody's been hearing cases of how outbreaks have been occurring. New York comes to mind a lot, but... Really, it's happening all over the world right now. And we're finding out about a pocket of infections that happened in Michigan. We're finding out who the patient zero is there. And it offers a cautionary tale about how how quickly the measles actually spreads.
3: There were a measles outbreaks in New York, and the epicenter was in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn. And last month, a traveler who was visiting Brooklyn and had been staying there for about two months, decided to drive to Detroit to um, raise money for charity. And on his way, he felt sick and saw a doctor, but the doctor had never seen measles before. That is crazy to The man's fever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you think about it, measles was eliminated in the United States in 2000. So you have to be an older doctor to have seen measles cases. right: So if you're a doc you know, of a certain age, you probably have never seen measles. Plus, measles symptoms are very similar to the cold and flu, it's fever and cough and a runny nose. And if you're a doctor who's never seen measles, measles may not be the first thing that comes to mind when you're looking at somebody who's sick during cold and flu
0: seasons, And he didn't have the rash at that point, so the doctor diagnosed him with bronchitis. What happened after that, where they really started figuring it out? He was
3: given an antibiotic by the doctor, but the next day he called the doctor back and complained about a rash. The doctor initially thought that this was a reaction to the antibiotic and gave the guy a different antibiotic. But then the doctor thought a little bit more, hmm. This was a traveler from Brooklyn. He had these symptoms. Maybe he has measles. So he called the health department and left a voicemail um, with the health department along with the traveler's cell phone information. But the health department wasn't able to reach the traveler because the traveler's disposable cell phone had a corrupted SIM card. Wow. So (laughs) they had to jump into action.
0: I I think he ended up getting 39 people sick with the measles after that, mostly adults in that case. And and as we started off saying, you know, this came from New York, he brought it to Michigan, but do we know how it started there in New York at all?
3: New York has said part of the reason why New York's outbreak has been so hard to come under control is that New York has had multiple patient zeros. They've had multiple travelers getting sick from travel to Israel and coming back infected with measles, in the community and getting people sick. Wow. So when you do an infectious disease outbreak, you have to know where the person was and then everybody else who was in contact with this person and, and then go work backwards. So in Michigan's case, there were hundreds and hundreds of potential contacts that health department folks and investigators had to track down.
0: There's already been more measles cases in 2019 than any year in the last five years. And it's still, it's barely April. I think in 2014, there were 667 cases of measles. So we could potentially reach that number. Tell us how infectious the disease actually is.
3: Measles virus is very, very small, teeny, teeny, tiny. So those droplets hang in the air. That's why it's so infectious. You can get it through breathing the air after somebody has sneezed or coughed, or if after measles virus has been on a contaminated surface. So if I have measles, And I walk into this drugstore and then you come in after me and you have not been vaccinated up to two hours after, you know, I've left. There is a 90 percent chance that you will get sick.
0: And that's what the Michigan Patient Zero was doing. He was going to kosher stores. He was going to services. He was going into people's homes and raising money with his fundraisers. So he was all over the place infecting a lot of people. We're in for some more news about this. Uh, I just got an alert not too long ago that said in Europe, it's also getting pretty crazy.
3: The World Health Organization said that measles cases have increased 300% worldwide in the first three months of 2019 compared to the first three months in 2018. In Madagascar, there have been 1,200 measles deaths. And in Europe, in France and Italy, there are big outbreaks. So if you're thinking about going on spring break and summer vacation, you know, you should probably make sure that you're fully vaccinated.
0: Lena Sun, national health reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.